0: Are you worried about people talking about you? Stop! They are. And there's nothing you can do about it. But you can, shh, put on your listening ears and get ready for the Courage Whisperer on Stand Up and Speak Up. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and this is Debbie coming to you from sunny South Florida sunny for the minute. I think it's going to rain today, but it's okay. We need some good old rain. And I want to thank you all for being here on Stand Up and Speak Up. Another terrific guest is coming our way, and I'm really excited to have her here. Folks, please welcome Miss Denise Garrett. Denise is coming to us from Lilburn, Georgia, which is near Stone Mountain in Georgia, which is near Atlanta, Georgia. And it's beautiful up there right now, I bet. Actually, it's raining. Well, hey, rain is pretty, <laughs> but we, we need the rain, so grateful for it. There you go. Has fall started yet? Yes. Okay, perfect. So. That's one thing growing up in Vermont, I was around the fall and I'm in Florida and I absolutely love the heat, the sun. I miss the trees, but I don't miss the cold. <laughs> don't miss the cold. But anyway, welcome to Stand Up and Speak Up, a show about people that have a story And I know you have one and I can't see it right now, but you're wearing part of your story on your shirt and we're going to talk about your firefighting days. Um, but just briefly, Denise is a clinical social worker, correct? Yep. That's the title that doesn't like labels. So even though I just called her a former firefighter, she probably likes that label. Um, We will be talking later on about how labels can define who you are and how you live up or down to labels. But before we get there, I'd like to go back and find out a little bit about my guest, where you grew up, what your family's like, siblings, and things you like to do.
1: So I grew up in Lilburn, Georgia, actually. Um, So uh, let's see, my family, I had a mom and a dad and me, so I've been only. Um, and I love to play outdoors, that was my thing, and so I was a finicky eater as a kid. And the way my parents bribed me was if you clean your plate, you can go out and play. <laughs> and it worked because I loved being outside. The other thing I loved is if they served something that I didn't like, I would put it in my pocket, sneak it in my pocket, and get rid of it outside as soon as I could. Um, so my dad knew it, I don't think my mom did, and thank god he didn't tell her, um, but uh, I I don't know anything. What else to say? I was the kind of kid that climbed trees and my dad told a story of when I was probably, I don't know, two and three years old, maybe four, but probably more like on the three side. Um, my mom had called me in for dinner and I said, I'm coming, mommy, I'm coming. But I didn't come and I didn't come. And so she got really irritated with me and told my father to go get his child. <laughs> and so dad came out and he called me and he heard me say, "I'm coming daddy, I'm coming." And he looked up and I was way up in a tree and he said I shaved about 10 years off of his life because I was so far up there. And he knew he couldn't like panic because that if he scared me then I might fall. So he just said, "You're doing good, baby. Just just ease on down that tree." And he took me inside and never told my mom cuz very, very upset. So if you catch a theme there, my mom, um, is a worry wart and a bit of a scaredy cat, but when you put it into context, it kind of makes sense. She lost her mom when she was six years old and life was scary for her. Um, and they, they didn't have much money growing up. And so she got, um, kind of bullied about that and, uh, it was hard for her. So I kind of like, I developed an appreciation for her over the years.
0: That's really nice, and we we've, we've talked about moms. If your mom is is still alive, you're caregiver, you're a caregiver yep. for your mother, so we have yep. that in common. You're a little more involved than I am, uh, but it's really it's an important relationship, I feel, uh, yes. especially as time goes on. Just to sit down and talk, and I don't know, have you ever have you well before mom got sick? Did you have an opportunity to really chat with her about her
1: life and you have a good idea of what her life is all about? As much as she'll share. There's some things I think she just, she's not comfortable sharing. She's like an old, uh, I don't mean old, like she's just like a Southern lady mm. and she's old school. And so in the South, you don't talk about the tough things. Um, you know, it's kind of like, it, it's not acceptable. Just like uh, a lot of people feel that about mental health issues. Um, which is really sad because I don't know, like we talked about, I don't like labels. I think everybody goes through things in life that are just difficult and challenging. Um, And so I think it's a shame that we have to put labels on that kind of thing um, instead of just saying, look, these horrible things happen and they're hard to deal with.
0: Well, for me, it's that whole woman behind the smile where we were taught to be as, I want to say as perfect. We want the image to be perfect. We don't want anybody to know that
1: we've got a crack, because it makes us lesser than in our minds. But it really doesn't. I think um, it's 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 just a shame because you know we're we're human beings and we have the full spectrum of emotions and we have that for a reason. And I feel like the I, I mean I know what it's like to put on a fake smile. Believe me, um, so much so that when I was in uh, a group psychology practice, um, I was walking down the hall to collect my next client. And one of my colleagues said, how are you doing? And I said, fine. And she said, you might want to inform your face. (laughs) And and it took me like, it just stopped me in my tracks. And I turned around and looked at her and she said, look, I care about you, you can tell me the truth. And I said, well, actually I'm I'm struggling with some things. And she said, we'll have time later if you'd like to talk. But what she taught me was there are people that really do care and it's okay to share. Now there's other people that we might not feel safe with or want to share with, but that was a big lesson for me. And, you know, hell, I was a therapist at the time, pardon my language, but you know, like I should have known better, so to speak, but I'm human too. Well, and you can't should have could have
0: yourself. We know that. We've talked a lot about that in the past, but uh, I think we all have, well, speaking for myself and I know my mom's going to be listening to this, We did want to put on a good face to the community, to whatever. I mean, I was the the dentist's daughter. There was a lot of pressure as a kid to to live up to high standards. And, And I grew up in a small town in Vermont. And if you did anything, oh, my gosh, everybody knew about it. And it'd be the first beeline back to your parents. Not that I got in trouble, but just riding. I had an orange bike once and I rode it gangbusters down a hill and I think I hit something which left a little bit of orange paint well Mm -hmm. you can't hide orange paint on something and it's like hey doc's daughter did umptocrats and I'm sure mom and dad are listening going you did what but we we were always you know afraid that that whatever we did good or bad was going to get tattled on and so you do grow up kind of shielding which isn't good. I don't want my kids to do that, but I'm sure they did. We find out in our fifties. I when my brothers and I sat with my parents on there, oh my gosh, about five years ago. So it would have been their 60th anniversary or something. We started talking about the stuff we did as kids. And my mom sat there with her mouth just gaping. Yes. We <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <be> did, <like>, what? <laughs> but <it's fun. laughs> so this story, this is about you though. Let's go back. Cause you grew up and you 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 were a faithful daughter. You went off to school. And when you got out of college, tell us a little bit about college and what you did when you got out.
1: So I went to college and got my degree. And when I got out, I did what my family, all of my family, not just my parents, um, my extended family all said, you should go to work for a good company and retire with the gold watch. And so I did that. I went to work for a really good company. And uh, they paid me really good money for, to be the kid that I was. Um, I was like making to me insane amounts of money. I'm like, why would they pay a kid that much? But anyway, um, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was an environment where it was customer service and we handled calls. And when the phone was blinking a certain way, we knew that there were lots of calls waiting. And so we couldn't go to the bathroom without raising our hand and getting permission. And for me, it's like, I'm an adult and I want to take care of my customers, but I know my bladder better than you or the phones. <laughs> and so I just didn't like that. It was a very stifling environment. And so I was like, I can't do this. I just, I can't, I need to do something that makes me happy that, I don't know, just that makes me happy. So I gave up, I gave that up. The, I didn't do it right away, but I was started looking for like, what do I want to do next? Um,
0: did you share that with your family or
1: friends I shared it with my friends but not my family because of course my family you know they were they would have tried to talk me out of doing what I knew I needed to do for my health and well-being um, not because they would have been like what well, you keep they had lots of reasons they wanted me to stay and they were perfectly good reasons like I, I understood but I just knew it wasn't for me and so I had to I had to honor me and, and I give you
0: great credit for doing that because I'm thinking back, particularly uh, with, with our children. We want the best for the kids and the best for them may not be the best in our mind. And, uh, and I've learned with four children that over time I had to let go and letting go of that control can be difficult. Um, but if you don't and the kids fail in their minds, they they make choices that aren't as good as they could be, or should be, or might be, um, then they start really blaming themselves for doing that, because now they feel guilty they didn't live up to your expectations, and, and I'm talking about, particularly my youngest, and we've had, he's doing great now, but over the years, we really struggled and had to talk about I wish you had been brave enough to tell me you didn't want to do X, Y, Z. You know, it was expected of him to do certain things, at least in his mind, like you said before, he thought he had to follow in his brother's footsteps and do what his dad would have wanted him to do. And of course, I was on doing that, too. I was thinking, you know, school's your homework and the Naval Academy and this and this and that, and those huge expectations. And he didn't want to do that. But I didn't see it and he didn't say it. So I was just curious, you know, when you were going to make a leap that mom would have worried about and you chose not to tell her your, your friends, what did they say about you seeking something else?
1: They were very supportive. Um, I feel blessed. They all were like, well, what do you think you want to do? Um, have you thought about, like They they gave me ideas because I, I was really doing soul searching, um, and, and didn't know. And so they would they would present ideas, you know, or have you thought about this? You really enjoy X, how about Y? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so they were incredibly supportive. Um, I like I said, I feel blessed there. Um and a perfect kind of uh, like they they were helping me plant seeds and grow them, you know.
0: Well that's valuable to have to have input um and ideas. Yeah. Did you ever do like a battery of
1: tests or anything to find out what your skills might have been? When I was in high school, they had developed a thing called the Strong Campbell Interest Inventory. I don't know if it's still around today, but I had taken it and I knew. So I pulled that back out of the, you know, files. I had it filed away somewhere thinking it might come in handy one day. And I looked at it and nothing was really, you know, striking me at the time. Um, But it didn't take long before I found the person who connected me with what would become my next career. Um, and so that was a blessing in itself. You know, it's funny when you put things out in the universe, um, they come to you. You know, it's like, you don't have to work as hard as we often think. So tell me that story. Cause
0: you, you did relate it to me about the idea that got planted and stuck.
1: Yeah. So I um, played soccer at the time and uh, loved it. And, we uh my team at mates and I would go out to a pub after the games that sponsored us and hang out and chat and some of our other friends would come and we would just all chat stuff so one of my teammates had a a roommate that um she thought I needed to talk to so one day this lady shows up and she introduces herself and we just start talking and we had a lot in common like we both love science we both love taking things apart and putting them together um we love nature. We love being physically active, um, physical exercise and training and stuff. And so we're talking, and at some point she says, "Well, so and so says that you um, you're looking for a new career." And I said, "Well, yeah, I am." And she said, "Have you ever thought about being a firefighter?" My first response was, "No, you can die doing that." <laughs> and then she said, "Well, yes, you can, um, but we're all going to die anyway, um, and obviously, you know, you." you 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 would want to die doing something you love, right? Or something like that. And I was like, well, that's a good point. And then I said, yeah, but women don't do that. And then she said, well, I am a woman and I do that. I am a firefighter. And so that was intriguing. Um, And she knew well enough, I don't know how not to push it on me. We just chatted. Um, We Like that conversation kind of ended and and then, I don't know, we chatted on and off over the next couple of weeks. But about two weeks later, I called her up and said, hey, I want to try this thing. Tell me what I need to do. Uh, you and I had this conversation about it because I love Chicago
0: Fire. And yes. when you said that you're one of the first, you know, the only women, i was thinking of Stella Kid and all the fun stuff in Chicago Fire. And I was watching it the other night, my Wednesday show. And it is a tough, you are a lady in a man's world. And I've actually interviewed many of my friends, uh, many women uh, in the past couple of seasons that were women in men's worlds that stayed feminine and had that soft touch, but had grit and determination and the drive. So how did you deal with the guys when you first got in to that? Did you feel
1: a stranger in a funny world? I felt an enormous sense of pressure um, to succeed. And a lot of that was just me. Like I had decided I wanted to do this. And so I was committed, 100% committed. And when I made that decision that I was going to be a firefighter, I didn't know when or where, I just knew I was. So um, I did all sorts of training. I had to do extra training to pass some of the tests. I studied for the written test. I I did all sorts of things just to prep for it because it's a very rigorous process just to get hired. Now, when I got hired, I didn't know I was going to be my county's first and only female firefighter. I didn't know that. I just passed the test and passed the, the last thing we, they do is a panel interview where you're in a room with a bunch of uh, chiefs and uh, it's very intimidating and they throw questions at you from all around the room and you just have to answer their questions. And, you know, it's, it's a, I was sweating bullets. I'm not going to lie. But apparently I did okay and I passed everything. And so I got in. And so my I accepted this particular job with this county because my friend who got me into this said that uh, my county was a very progressive county in our area and they um, took really good care of their people. They gave really good equipment, really good training. And that's the kind of thing situation you want. So I listened. And I I accepted the job, and then shortly thereafter found out I was the first and only female. And if I had known that up front, I'm not sure I would have taken it, honestly. But I had, and I was like, okay, well, what's next? I mean, now I have to figure this thing out. And so it was uh, it was challenging because a lot of the guys um, didn't feel like women belonged in the fire service. Um. Thankfully, most of my guys, um, once they saw I could pull my weight, they were fine with me being there. Because really and truly, if you think about it, it's a dangerous job. We have to rely on each other in case something goes wrong to get us out, as well as rescue other people and not become a victim ourselves. And so that's a lot to expect from a human being. And they wanted to make sure that I could do the job. Thankfully, when they saw that I could, most of the guys were okay um, and really just embraced me as part of the family.
0: And we talked to you about, there are different skill sets that you had that were valuable to the guys. Can you kind of explain how each individual has a part to
1: play in the family? Sure, I think this is true even in our in our like personal families. Um, we In the fire department, we played each other's strengths. And that means you have to know your weaknesses. Um, but you play to the strength. So in my case, I was smaller and lighter than most of the guys, even with all the gear on, which is pretty heavy. Um, So if you needed to um, test the structural soundness of something after fire, like they could tie a rope to me and send me out because if the floor would support me and I could find the soft spots, then that would reduce the number of potential injuries that we would face. When we had a confined space rescue, I was good for that because again, I was smaller and could fit in spaces that they couldn't. Um, if you had a, like a really bad car crash where the car's like crunched up pretty good, a lot of the times I could fit in the car to help do the medical side of things um, while they were being the victim was being extricated from the vehicle. Um, and then there were calls where like women were raped, and obviously, if you've just been raped, you're not you're scared of men. And so, having a female there to help was an important thing. Um, So, they felt more comfortable with me. And when I first started this, I wasn't um, as medically trained as some of my guys. And so, I was the bridge. I would be like, Look, you know, I know you're scared. And I would comfort them and support them. And then I would say, Now, look, I trust him with my life. So, you can trust him too. And I'm right here. And I'm not going to let anything happen to you. So, I kind of became the bridge builder in those days. And then We found out that I had a knack for dealing with um, little kids, and um, I don't know why, honestly. I think a lot of my guys were uh, very uh, paternal, like they had that nurturing sense when it comes to kids, but for some reason, little kids found me reassuring or my presence reassuring, so I was often the one to um, just comfort them.
0: I was on a phone call last night, I'm on the board of directors of an organization called SCARS, which is the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, and we were talking about with some of the survivors and thrivers of of financial fraud, we were talking about the vicarious trauma that caregivers or first responders might actually take upon themselves in those situations. How do were you ever trained in uh, in protecting your heart basically from what was going on? Because you and I talked to uh, earlier about you can't save everybody, and you can't help everybody, but you also can't take that pain on yourself after the fact. So was there any training in in protecting yourself from from getting too close to what was going on? No, no, no training. Were you? We, ever, uh,
1: I think firefighters and I think first responders are good at what I call compartmentalizing. Okay. So obviously if we show up to the scene, we have a job to do and we have to do it in order to have a good outcome or as good of an outcome as we can achieve. And so we, we, our feelings go in one compartment that's, you know, kind of pushed to the back and we're in action mode response mode to handle the situation Um, There's no training for that that I know of, maybe in the military, but I really don't know. Um, But I think we naturally do that. The challenge becomes if we don't deal with the emotional aspect at some point, I think stuffing it can cause lots of problems. And that's where you get things like PTSD. You get people that um, do reckless behavior. You get people that like we I know me and my guys, when we worked a really crappy call at times we, we would go out after the shift and go, um, for breakfast. And then we would go bowling and we would drink a lot, um, of beer. And, and that's not like the healthiest way to deal with it. I will say though, from a team perspective, it kept us tight as a family. Mm -hmm. But
0: did, did that lead to alcoholism and and issues with
1: addiction? For some guys? yeah. Yeah. And for some, I'm sure for some ladies now too. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, but, um, it's just not, There wasn't a system back then. Things could have changed. I did this a long time ago, Um, but back in my day, the best that they came up with was this peer support thing. And I don't know, they got some kind of training and it was hard because got firefight fire departments are gossip mills. I mean, totally. I thought women gossiped until I was in the fire department and I'm like, women don't hold a candle to these dudes. I'm telling you. Um, so the challenge is, you know, like if you needed help, like there's one guy, we all knew he had stuff going on um, and he had a drinking problem. Um, it didn't really show up on duty as much, I didn't work with him directly, but as much as I could had interacted with him, it didn't seem like it did, but he went in to, to get help for that. But everybody knew about it, like everybody. And I just don't think that should have happened. It should have been Is private thing, but that's the hard thing. You're a family, like the whole, you and the whole department, like you're a family. And so families do know what's going on. And so it's just a hard thing.
0: Well, and it's the, it's again, that hiding behind the smile, because I know in the military too, you never wanted to tell what your weakness was, uh, the PTSD or something like that, because it could be held against you for promotion or for, you know, a specialized job or security clearances. And that's tough because then people do start to hide it and they self self medicate, and it's then you go down the rabbit hole and then it's too hard yeah. to get you back. So you you also had a knack for listening, and how did you transition to being a therapist or a social worker? Where where did that come in to play?
1: So when I was in the department, I had to I had knee surgery and I was out recovering from knee surgery, and I had already volunteered at a place called the Georgia Council on Child Abuse, and I enjoyed that. It was, uh, we, we served adult survivors of child abuse, and we also served like parents who were worried, like, is my child being abused? And then every now and then we would get a young person call in and say they were being abused, and we would get them the help that we could. Um, so, uh, my supervisors there, we go through training. My supervisors there said, you have a, a real knack for this. And I said, you know, I do enjoy it. It's a lot. So in the knee surgery recovery stage, I thought to myself, can I do this job, meaning firefighting till I can retire? And the truth was, I didn't know the answer. It's a very physical job. And I just was like, well, if I couldn't do this, what would I want to do? And I thought about opportunities in the department, but they all seemed boring to me. I mean, like desk jobs, um, pushing paper, or a, if you're the chief, then it's a political job. And that just didn't appeal to me. And so I was like, well, I wouldn't want that because um, I like to be in, in the action or helper mode. So I just then I was like, ask them, how do I become a therapist? You know, how do I do this? And they talked to me about it and helped me. And they told me, when you apply to grad school, It'll take three to five tries to get in because the programs are very competitive. May have changed today, but back then it was very competitive. And so I went into the idea of becoming a therapist thinking that I had at least three to five more years in the department before I had to make any changes Um, because I loved my job. Um, However, I got in a very competitive program the very first try. And I couldn't turn that down because I'm like, I don't know when I would get in again. And I went to my chief and basically said, hey, chief, can I switch to a day job? Um, Because we work 24 on, 48 off. So a day job is like a normal person job, nine to five or seven to four, whatever. Um, And so that I can go to grad school. And then when I graduate, I'd like to go back out on shift because I love being a firefighter. And I promised him, like, I'll maintain my fitness and all the things I'm supposed to do to be firefighter ready. Um, and he said, no, shut that down quick. Yeah. So I ended up saying, okay, then I guess I have to resign.
0: But that wasn't the end of the story. I said, that wasn't the end of the story. This grad school thing went a whole lot faster than you had anticipated.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I went in and when I, I got, you know, it's funny how things can come together for you. Um, so I thought it. when I realized my chief wasn't gonna let me stay on, I started thinking, well, what, what am I gonna do while I'm going through school? And I got in with the group psychology practice as the, like an office manager for their testing portion. And um, it, so I was getting exposed to, to the field that I was going to go into more and learning a lot and building relationships with other potential referral sources and learning about the business side of it, if you will, which is valuable. Um, and uh, the school, the program, like I said, was incredibly competitive. I think that there were only 23 openings and there were over 2000 applicants or something wow. like that. So I really couldn't turn that down. Um, and I just took the leap and did it. Um, and I had that job. So I worked during the day and went to school at night and in three years I was finished and starting to build my own practice.
0: Well, what I love, Denise, is the determination. You, you, you knew you didn't want to be in customer service all your life. You loved the physical part. You loved the family part. You loved the therapy part of, uh, I mean, the relationship part of the fire department. But someone shut you out of that one. And sometimes, though, when those doors shut, windows, you know, what is it? Shut the door, open, open a window, opens, and you can move forward. And I love how you call them little. Um, they were little godsends, which is true. There are little things that happen. And if you are at a place where you would just pause, because we get so busy in life that we're just listening to all the noise around us, take a pause and listen to your heart, listen to your gut, which sometimes we don't do well enough. um, Because there is an opening, there is a reason why you had those experiences. And now you've moved on into your your social work and your therapy your therapist so and tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and the types of people that you like to be around
1: so um, i don't really consider myself a therapist like i let go of my license Um, a while back i went into emergency management consulting for a bit um which it it was a good track for me. I got to connect with my firefighter brothers and sisters. I got to connect with other emergency responders. Um, really cool and serve in a different way. Um, humanity and my brothers and sisters. Um, but, um, even early on as a therapist, I would tell people I'm not a traditional therapist because like we talked about, I don't like labels. Right. I think people live up to their labels. Um, and I'm very, hesitant to label someone, especially with a limiting label. Like I just don't like that. I don't feel good about it. It doesn't feel good in my belly. And so I prefer to look at it like um, people go through hard things in life. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. And if you were in their shoes, given their background, their personality, their like all of that, you'd probably end up in the same spot, you know, struggling. So it's normal for us to have challenges in life that we struggle with. So why do I have to label that as something's wrong with you or somehow you're less than because you're not, you're just in a place where maybe you're overwhelmed and maybe you don't have the right tools and strategies to navigate this smoothly. So I just prefer to look at it like the person, I call it the person and environment, like the whole person. And that includes all aspects of their life. And then I look at like, here's where you are now, where do you want to go? And how Like my job is to get you where you want to go. Um, to help you, like to give you the tools and the strategies and that kind of thing. And to be your cheerleader sometimes, because sometimes we need that. Um, So even then I wasn't, and I consider that a coaching model. Now today, everybody and their brother is a coach, it seems like, um, and it's not regulated. And so sometimes I'm hesitant to call myself that, but that's really what I am. When you look at what an athletic coach does, They look at their player, they look at their natural strengths, they look at the areas where they're not performing um, so hot to reach their goals, and they work on that with them so that they can achieve their goals. Um, So I consider myself a personal development coach and I'm I focus on helping people going through life transitions. No surprise there, having been a firefighter, I saw people go through a lot of transitions, but specifically going through a divorce or you've been through a divorce and you're still struggling with things. if you get a health diagnosis you're going through like a health crisis, like imagine, I don't know if anybody listening has had this, but if, if you're told you have cancer, like the C word, that's a big deal. Like it knocks the socks off of it. It, it. it takes you to your knees because obviously you're scared you're going to lose your life. And so there are strategies like, and that I can provide that can help you navigate that. And that actually comes from a long study, a lifetime study of since, I was 16, I worked, my first real job was in a hospital as a physical therapy technician or aide, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I began to get very curious about why do some people who have very similar in injuries from let's say a car accident, why do some people go on to walk and others don't? What's the difference? I got very curious about that. And over the years, I I tuned into some key things that make a big difference. So when you get that diagnosis, whatever it is, Um, I like to share those strategies with people um, so that they hopefully will have a better outcome. And I can't guarantee that they're going to heal and recover because I'm not psychic and I'm not a doctor. Um, But I do know the people that apply this have a a much smoother process going through it. Um, So I specialize in that. And then career changes, whether they're expected or unexpected. Expected meaning like me when I said, hey, I don't want to work in this corporate job anymore. I want to go do something else. Or unexpected, like if you get laid off um, or like during COVID when so many businesses shut down and you just walk all of a sudden, you didn't have a job.
0: Well, um, I, find I, it, I find it interesting, especially with the, the analogy of the health. When I apply it to the women that I work with and, and support uh, that have lost their finances, basically their life. They've, you know, there's been that, talk about a transition when your, your heart's been stolen and your finances have been stolen and you've hit rock bottom and you're like, now what I do. And it's, it's interesting that you say that some will, some will move out and some won't. You know, if you take on that label of victim, you will never move out. We were talking yesterday about how we, you know, we're going to have a newbie group. And those are the people that are just newly, newly found out that they've been, been taken. And then we've got the survivors and then the thrivers and then the advocates. So there's a progression and we want, you know, the the advocates and, and the thrivers are the cheerleaders. Like you said, people need to see the bigger view, you know, because I think so many times we get focused in on our problem. And we can't see the big picture. We can't see our potential and our value. And thats I think that's what you're doing as a coach is you're seeing them from outside the frame of the
1: picture. Yes. I actually had a client say that I, um, the way I listen is she, she she felt like I got her exactly where she was at. Not a lot of compassion and empathy, but at the same time I stretched her. Um, and I liked that because for me, that's my goal you know, it's, it's, I get the pain. Like I, I, I'm an empath. I get it. Um, I have a lot of compassion for people just for human beings and what we go through. Um, but I also know that like we can't stay stuck and, and live a happy, fulfilling life. And my goal really is for that, for everyone. I would love to see everyone, you know, thriving really.
0: Are there a couple of basic strategies that you have to do right off the beginning? Think, it's
1: hard because when you're in the victim mode, you've exper- we experience it so it's like to the core, mm-hmm. you know, and the challenge becomes when we stay stuck in that. So there's a dance that goes on. I, I teach this and it's also, I talk about it in my book, um, Made to Thrive, but um, I call it the drama triangle and it involves three key roles a victim, a persecutor and a rescuer. So when somebody's playing victim, you are either their persecutor, if you're not doing what they want you to do, or you're their rescuer because you're doing what they want you to do. So you could be a rescuer for, and I'm not saying this like you are genuinely that person. I'm saying it like that's the role they have you in. And when that's going on, there's a lot of blame. The victim's blaming outside you know, or maybe even themselves. And there's no real power in blaming. The value comes when you can step back and take personal responsibility and just say, what was my part in this? So I'm thinking right now about, um, like, your situation where maybe, you know, it's been a love scam and, and, you know, a romantic kind of scam, and the women who've lost a lot of money from that, the... The thing is, maybe you missed some signals early on, I don't know. Um, But what I do know is you had an open heart and you believed in love. You believed in romance and you wanted to trust that. And that's not a crime. It's sad that someone took advantage of that, but then the key would be to ask, instead of blaming yourself, it would just be to ask like, hey, what can I learn from this? You know, what signs were there that maybe I missed? And if, if there, if you can't see signs, maybe talk to somebody like, I'm glad you have these groups where you come together and maybe that's something that you can discover with other people by listening and observing. You know, I learn a lot in um, groups listening to other people when they're getting um, coached or feedback or whatever. Um, I I learn a lot just by listening. Um, But does that make sense? It is. and, And I love that, that drama triangle.
0: Yeah. And it, and I, it, obviously the triangle's got three sides and I, we've talked about, you know, in the victim world, you have a third that are the deniers the third that are the haters and the third that are the realists who would be that person that now has taken a hundred responsibility for what happened, you know, but the other two sides is very difficult because I've been blamed. I've been excoriated by people who are so angry at the the counsel we're trying to give they're not in the spot to accept anything and it's just someone else's fault so i really like that drama triangle the victim the persecutor and the rescuer because we've all been in each of those positions at one point yeah but it's transitioning out and i really like how you do that and uh but it starts with communicating and yes and talking how do you encourage or how do you get people to speak up because it's very difficult like I was telling you the other day three out of 100 victims will tell their story mm-hmm. most people don't want to open up because it makes them vulnerable to criticism or self-judgment or all that so how do, how do you get them to start that
1: I think the first step is people have to have a safe place to, before they're really going to open up they have to feel safe And so when you're in a group of judgmental people, it's really hard to feel safe. But I will say this, it's one of the most valuable things I've ever been given by a coach. It was my coach, and I was um, terrified of public speaking. And I began working on it because I could see where I wanted to go with my career, and I knew that I needed to get better at that. And so... I was doing pretty good, but I felt like there was still room for improvement. I asked my coach one day, like, how can I do this? And He he basically said, if you're worried about people judging you, stop. They are. (laughs) Human beings, human beings are judging and voting machines. And he says, you're not here to live your life for them. You're here to live your life for you. And you're here to focus on your message. That's your contribution to the world. And that really helped me um, tremendously. And now I can tell, like, if I get nervous in a group or anything, it's because the focus is on me and not what I'm there for, how I'm there to serve. And when I get the focus back, you know, on that, like what I'm there to, to serve, my message, whatever, the nervousness goes away.
0: Well, the key, but- word, the key word there for me was serve. It's yeah. about service and and it's not about you it's and I, I realized that from the very beginning when when I first spoke up to that one woman that I call gave me the stink eye I'm thinking oh my gosh you know I could shut down right now until I saw the woman beside her whose head was just going like this and I'm thinking okay yeah. focus on that person you you don't need to this one's not the one for you you know this right. one is and uh so that's interesting because that judgment yeah it, I think as we get older well, I found this. It's a little bit easier to not really care what people think. I yeah. still do, but not to the point that it will stop me from doing what I know is valuable for somebody. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. It is easier when we get older, I think. Um, but the it, it just hit me because we are voting machines, voting and judging machines. Um, we look at someone and we have an immediate opinion about them yeah and it could be totally inaccurate but we go there and and that's not it i'm not saying that to beat up on myself or for anyone to beat up on themselves it's just to notice it and to catch it and go hey is this who i choose to be now obviously if i perceive someone as a threat to me then i want to pay attention to that um but if if i just you know maybe i didn't like that they had i don't know I'm going to make it up to tattoos or purple hair or something, you know, really, does it matter that they have tattoos or purple hair? It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about who they are as a person in their heart. And so if I catch myself and just go to do what I just did, like that doesn't, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is their character, who they are in their heart, you know, and then I have an opening for them to show up for me. As long as I'm in that judgmental state, they can't show up for me which is why my mom doesn't know probably 90% of my life because she's, she, God bless her. I understand how she became this way. She's, she lives in a fear state and I get how she got there, but, but she's very judgmental as a result of that and very cautious. And I'm a risk taker. God bless her. I don't know how she's put up with me for all these years, but I've been a risk taker from probably out of the womb, you know, and, and I'm just the one that's, not intentionally trying to cause her stress or anything, but I'm just being me, you know? So like when I jumped out of an airplane, um, cause I wanted to skydive and I got to do that. It was really cool. Um, I didn't tell her till after I did it and I showed her a picture of it and she freaked out. Oh my God, you could have died. Da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, mom, look at me. I'm right here. And, you know, I'm patting myself. I'm standing up. I'm like, nothing's broken. Everything's fine. Look at the smile on my face in this one photo. It was an opportunity of a lifetime. I loved it. I just could never. And I said, then that's fine. That's you. I I, I appreciate that. Not everybody's equipped to jump out of airplanes, nor should they. But it's something I had wanted to do for years. You know. So I think the more we can just have an appreciation for each other, is great. But when we're judgmental and a lot, our kids won't tell us stuff, um, or or our friends, or our or our wor- our our workers, our employees, or our coworkers, or you know it goes on and on and on because um, they hear it and they go like, well I can't. It's kind of like when you're a kid, you know what you can go ask mom for and you know what you can ask dad for. We're really no different than that as adults. We know who we can share what with and feel safe. And you want to feel safe if you're dealing with something that was traumatic, absolutely.
0: Well, I knew we were sisters by other misters because I've jumped out of airplanes twice. Yes, I didn't tell my mom until after. And same thing. She saying it could have. And I'm like, yeah, but I was with the kids. So if we're all going to go, we're going to go together. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. And, and I was thinking, as you said that, well, you climbed the tree at six. So you were given to your parents <laughs> as. An opportunity to see how to deal with risk or risk takers. That's really funny. But not everybody's going to jump out of an airplane. I did with my daughter. It was the most bonding experience we could have done. You know? And, but when my boys are doing that, when they're flying, I don't, I, I don't think about the risk that they're taking. I think about how well-trained they are. Yes. And I'm proud of them for, you know, they're both military pilots. I'm proud of them for what they're doing proud of Absolutely. them. And if something happens, well, you know, they went happy and they're with their dad now. Uh, Heaven forbid that happened, but I'm at a spot where I understand that. But when something bad happens to us, when we've lost our money, when we've been, you know, lost a relationship, when we've, we think that it's the worst thing I've found for me by talking to somebody else and hearing their story, boy, it takes that weight of my story off of me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm grateful for what happened to me that I didn't have that, and that may be a little bit judgmental, but that's my way of dealing with that, that Pollyanna part of me, and I think we've mentioned that uh, in our discussions too, about sometimes you just have to look for the good, and I know a lot of the, the survivors and thrivers I deal with, people would describe us as very pollyannish in our view of life, And big hearted, you know, want to help. And that got us in some deep financial trouble, but it's not the end of the world. Right. It's not. And so I love what you do because I even put down on on the this week's message, it was like a drop of positivity can change the world. Yes. So How, how do you get them to think positive when they have been in the middle of something horrific and it could be horrific?
1: Well, it's challenging. It can be. But I, for me personally, <laughs> there are days because I, I faced near death. Like, you know, my, my life was on the line as a firefighter. And so there are still days, Debbie, when I wake up and I tap myself and I go, wow, I'm still here. Like, I'm still alive. I can't believe it. Because when I look back at some of the things that happened, it's a miracle. It's a true miracle. So the one thing that I'd do quite a bit. Um, I have chronic fatigue syndrome. And some days when I wake up, it's really hard. Like I feel like my truck's been hit. I mean, my truck, my body's been hit by an 18-wheeler like 18 times. And so on those mornings, I start with, I'm going to get up and get a cup of coffee. And then I'm really grateful that I have two legs that I can walk I have two arms that can take care of the coffee. I have this taste to taste and enjoy the coffee. I can see where I'm going. I can hear my dogs, you know, wanting whatever they want. Um, But I start with, I can feel the softness of the fur. I can feel, so I start with things very tactile and very like grounded in my senses, if you will, and just give thanks for those things. And usually by the time I get to that point, I'm, I'm ready to face the day. And so it's hard when you've just, you know, had your world yanked out from under you, I get that. Um, And I think about the survivors of Ian right now, Hurricane Ian, who've lost, you know, everything, but they still have each other. They still have their health or what, what help they have. And that means as long as you're living and breathing, there's still hope. There's still an opportunity for you to recover and to go on and thrive. I really believe that. I've seen it way too many times in in life. I mean, I'm thinking about other disaster responses I've been part of, and, and it's just amazing that how resilient we are when we put our minds to it.
0: Yeah, you've, you've said some really key words. And as we were talking, I wrote down gratitude and grat- be grateful for the littlest thing. And, and it could be, I opened my eyes this morning. Yeah. And then move on. I love how you did the tactile stuff, the even the feel of the floor. I mean, I'm pretty healthy. And when I had that stress fracture in my foot and couldn't put my foot down, that was really annoying to me. And it's now after six weeks, it's just starting to really go away. And I, I, I'm grateful for those moments when it feels like it used to. And then I'm not so grateful because I can't go out and put my shovel down and dig a hole again without a <laughs> food on. Uh, but it really makes you appreciate what you can do, and and minimize the things you can't do because there's a lot of stuff we can't do. But it, as you it found out in the fire department, you can do a lot of great things that the guys couldn't do, five or two of your size. So I love that aspect of you know find your strengths and work together in your families. I and mean, even if you're at home alone with your dogs, find something that you're good at and that you love and, and make yourself happy doing those things. Yeah. And the other stuff is life, that's gonna happen. And you know, the alternative is you're on the other side and maybe that's better, maybe it's not, but right now we're here. So right. Denise, how can people get a hold of you if they wanna get involved in your, you've got the courageous, feel me in courageous.
1: Leadership Academy. Courageous Leadership Academy.
0: Mm-hmm. How do um, we get a hold of
1: you? So, there's a, my website, Courageous Leadership Academy, and that's um, an awesome way to connect with me. Uh, you can check out my website, and there is contact information. It also has, you can reach out by email. Um, if you're on Facebook, you can um, find me on Facebook at Courageous Leadership Academy or Denise Garrett. Um, and I think I'm the one in Lilburn, Georgia, but hopefully, uh, you'll if you scroll through my post you'll be able to recognize it's me feel free to reach out feel free to dm me you can always call me uh 470-939-5955 let me double check that that number we don't call ourselves often (laughs) no i just well it's that but it's also i just changed my number my business number recently and uh
0: but go to Courageous Leadership Academy. There's some really interesting things on that site. I was on it last night. And uh, and I love what you did. And I, and I thank you for your service in the fire department. It's very similar. Uh, your feelings about the fire department as a family were the many, the same feelings I had being in the Air Force and just giving of service to others. Um, but finding your niche and not, you know, those of us that are in our 50s and 60s, we can live to 90, 100. Deborah Morrison, my financial friend, always says, plan on being here till you're 100. My dad's 93. I gave him a seven-year contract for working with me until he's 100. We have a long way to go. So if, we, if we've had something happen to us right now at, at mid-60, we still have a third of our life to go. Don't Absolutely. stop. Absolutely. Right? So what? Uh, give, us, give us your last cheerleader pitch. What should people do
1: if they're in their 60s and they got 30 more years to go? Find what makes your heart happy and do it as much as you can. And if you haven't already figured out your strengths and you struggle with it, work with somebody to, to help uncover those. And always, always keep an at-a-girl or a boy file. And that's compliments you receive, whether it's from work, family, friends, you know, keep that in a, I call it like a file, like it could be a digital file or it could be a physical file. But when you're having a crappy day, pull that out. Like for me, this is going to sound corny, but I love cards and I have some of the sweetest cards from family and friends and I keep them in a box and I have several boxes now. But anyway, when I'm having a really crappy day, I go start reading those because it helps me. It helps me realize I'm loved. I have value I have people who love me um, and it helps just shift my mindset and get my energy back up. And surround
0: yourself with positive. I, I mean, I'm sitting here at my desk and I have a lot of stuff going on, but I put up some corkboard strips the other day. And because I have a lot of little post-it notes and my post-it notes that I have right in front of me go, follow your heart. I've got the don't give up, Jean. Power, 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 be unstoppable and go big. Why not just do it? Love it. I have them right here in front of me and they're small, but they're colorful. And I'm like, you know what? When I'm sitting here and I'm getting overwhelmed, I just look up. I'm like, yeah. yep. Yep. Don't give up, Jean. So Ms. Denise, thank you so very much for being my special guest on Stand Up and Speak Up. I applaud you for what you're doing. Folks, go to Courageous Leadership Academy and, and look her up, find her. Uh, she's a great listener. She could be a great friend to you. And just start talking. You're gonna find those things that you have in common and the experiences that you have in common. And Denise has some great strategies and some great tips. And she's a great listener. She's called the Courage Whisperer. So thank you, my friend. Um, thank you, thank I you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a wonderful Stand Up and Speak Up day. And folks, go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, and look at our other replays of our fabulous guests. And uh, we'll have Denise again. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by benfocomplete.com a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfotiamine products at benfocomplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day.